Welcome to the Mar Experience. My name is Matt Shedd. In this episode, I sit down with staff from the Men's Center to talk about Mar's approach to treatment. My guests include Director of the Men's Center, Doug Brush, Professionals Liaison, Rick McCain, and Residential Manager, Will Atkins. The three of them talk with me about what drew them to work at Mar and what keeps them coming back. We also talk about trends they are seeing, such as how the opioid epidemic and increased marijuana potency have affected what they see when clients show up for treatment. Uh, I'm Doug Brush. I'm director of the men's program. Uh, I started Mar in 1978 as a residential manager, and then in 1981, I became the director of residential services. The way I introduce myself in the Mar Spiritual Life Groups is I'm Doug and I'm a sinner. And I do that to proclaim my spiritual beliefs and my belief in my Lord and Savior. And I guess also to show that this isn't the spiritual principles you're talking about aren't just applicable to people well, with they, suffering from substance abuse issues. Uh, they include all of us. We all have uh, a, a defect of character or multiple defects of character that we have to surrender to on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And uh, I'm Will Atkins. I'm a residential manager here at the Men's Center. I started as an intern at Mar in 2012 and then came on full-time uh, in the position I hold now in 2013. Okay, great. Are you a sinner too? Absolutely. Got to follow a Doug. <laughs> Got to listen to the boss. Also a sinner. Yeah, yes. right. <laughs> um, my name is Rick McCain, and I started at Mar in 1994 and <clears throat> started off as a residential manager. I think I was the only one. And, um, and then moved into... Um, professional liaison role about 14 years ago. Okay. I'm also a center. All right. Good. <laughs> a bunch of sinners sitting around the table here. All right. Great. You know, you all could probably work at a lot of different places. What is it about Mar that keeps you coming back here? There's two things. It's, it's working with the, the people that we work with, the clients that we work with and seeing them actually change and, and having them around long enough to actually notice change and observe change and, and be with them through the change. So that's, that's feels good. You know I mean? Anybody that works in this field is going to have uh, some people where we end up going to funerals for over, over a period of years, but seeing people actually change and, and then having a sense of gratitude for that change and being part of this Mar community is pretty rewarding. Absolutely. What about you, Will? It's a combination again of a couple things. It's, it's getting to see, people change, getting to, to form these new relationships with people um, as they progress through their recovery, getting to go to things like our annual Christmas dinner where guys will share their life stories and the changes that they've experienced at Mar, but also getting to to celebrate the holiday and eat with, with my coworkers, with the people that I work with. Um, that side of things I just never expected when I started working in this field. Um, I, I feel like the things that we suggest for our clients to do, we have to practice ourselves. And that's a huge benefit, getting to take care of myself on a daily basis, like Rick was saying, and pop into someone's office and say, here's what's going on with me uh, to get me in a better space to go and be with the client and help them to do the same thing. Um, there's something special about that. Yeah, you can't just preach the community. You have to actually participate in your own community. Absolutely. Yeah. How about you, Doug? I'd say a couple things. One, uh, I came to Mar in 1978, and we still believe and have the same core philosophies, basic core philosophies now that we had back then, which is very unusual for a corporation to maintain 
our belief system for 40 years. Um, uh, so that's one of the one of the things that it has kept me here. It's the opportunity to work with the richness of the staff. We have staff that have a lot of different talents, a lot of different therapy styles, a lot of different techniques uh, that are important to bring richness to our clients. But we all believe in the same philosophy. Um, and uh, that's so crucial in uh, maintaining values and uh, beliefs and care for those that we get the privilege to treat. How would you summarize that philosophy? Uh, we believe in a balance of spiritual, mental, and physical recovery. Um, we believe in good clinical intensity. Uh, we believe in uh, giving our clients the time they need to give themselves permission to be here uh, so they can begin the work of recovery. Uh, we believe in gender-separate care, which is crucial these days, not only separate but in, in uh, gender-specific care to help with the healing of shame and trauma in our clients' lives. Uh, and we believe in community. Um, the involvement of our community around us in uh, providing unconditional love and acceptance for our clients while they're in treatment is powerful. And that's always been a core belief uh, that's been there since day one at MAR in 1975. This might be a good chance for you all to talk about therapeutic community since sure. it's such a core thing of what we do here. What like what do you mean by that so term? The guys community? that are here with us in treatment uh, form a therapeutic community. And basically that's two apartments, around eight people in total, uh, that form up this community. And basically what we're, we're working with these guys on is, is utilizing the community as their own family. So getting their own needs met through the people that they're living with. Um, and ultimately what that looks like uh, is a variety of different things. You've got some people that struggle with being assertive are given opportunities to be assertive and ask for what they need. Uh, other guys that struggle with, with control and that sort of thing are given a, an opportunity to learn patience and tolerance with the other people that they're living with. And then also you've got this dynamic of new guys coming in, following in the footsteps of their peers that have been here a little longer, learning the rules, learning the structure, learning what's asked of them in terms of their 12-step involvement, uh, their responsibilities in the community, things down to you know planning meals for the week, grocery shopping, uh, basically living life uh, around peers and getting all their needs met uh, through communication, talking about what's going on with them, expressing their feelings, learning to be authentic. All of that rolled up into one sort of is, is the way I see the therapeutic process. It's also an opportunity for uh, individuals in treatment to risk learning how to be accountable for themselves and the other members of their community, which is basically supporting their recovery process instead of uh, chasing after their disease. So there's an accountability in a community of holding each other honest, keeping the integrity of the community, following the rules, uh, being willing to give up the one thing I want for the good of the community. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, sacri sacrificing, surrendering. You know, I really want to do this, but it, it's against the rules, and I'm willing to give that up to support the recovery process that I'm involved with in the therapeutic community. What's an example of that happening? Like, I really want to do this. Uh, they won't let me call my girlfriend yet because uh, uh, we're still assessing the relationship. Uh, and I could easily pick up the phone and call her and keep that a secret, but that would allow someone else to do something they want to do and keep it a secret. Mm. So at some point I got to surrender to the process and trust that um, eventually um, I'll learn the difference between my wants and my needs in early recovery. 
And pray. what happen, What happens in, in addiction is we get our wants and needs reversed. Yeah. We deprive ourselves of our needs, food, water, nurture, uh, rest, uh, the ability to be loved and to give love. And that our addiction wants supersede that instant gratification, wanting to change our mood or our feeling right now, wanting a relationship that'll fix me instead of looking at myself. Those are things that we get a chance to deal with in long-term treatment and recovery more. And addiction in general also is just based in secrecy. You know, if, if you don't know what's going on with me, then I can continue to do uh, what I want right here, right now. Uh, so learning that process in the community of, I guess, kind of getting out of that mentality of, we don't snitch on each other. That jailhouse mentality of, uh, oh, I bet that's yeah. a huge thing for pretty much everybody. Absolutely, yeah. and that's that's a pretty uh, it's a pretty rewarding process to watch happen as well. To see guys switch over to that uh, that accountability can be a form of care and love for each other. Whereas keeping a secret for somebody may, in the short term, feel like we're doing them a favor, but it's really just in service of their disease. Yeah, what's really hard is when they start out like that, keeping the secret. And then at some point when they have to confront the issue with whoever, the, one of their peers, uh, that's a tough thing to do. But uh, Especially if you have a secret yourself that you're going to have to confront uh, and give up as well. Right. A lot of guys think all the treatment takes place over at the center, right? Not mm -hmm. where we live. And that's different than our philosophy. We think a lot of the, probably most of the change and in, in the, the real treatment happens in the therapeutic community, in the residences. A lot of good things happen at the center, but it's it's kind of both. As they learn about themselves in treatment, they get to apply those and work on those core issues and character defects in the therapeutic community. The other thing about therapeutic community is to keep the community small, where everybody could fit around the dining room table. Mm -hmm. So our communities are small relational communities where they can support each other, confront each other, hold each other accountable, risk asking for their needs, asking for help, receiving help, giving help, receiving love, giving love in a small relational setting uh, that really works well in early recovery. Mm -hmm. So that's why we, we place an emphasis on that family quality time sitting around the dinner table and things like that. And I think the, the best example of that is the community meal that happens each Sunday night. Uh, and when I meet with guys as they're transitioning out or leaving, completing MAR, uh, most, if not all of them, mention the, the community dinners as being one of the most important and meaningful times uh, of their journey through here through Mar. And basically what that is, is is just what it sounds like. It's the two apartments getting together, having a family meal, cooking, eating together, um, talking about what's gone on through the day, turning the TV off, you know, and really just being with each other uh, and, and expressing themselves in, in that realm. And then also uh, someone will tell their life story for about an hour. So it's an opportunity for the guys away from the staff at Mar to begin to risk trusting the guys they're living with and, and sharing their truth and talking about their own life. Yeah. And when you look at it, the disease of addiction is the disease of isolation, mm -hmm. being alone. And what we're asking our men and women to do is risk being vulnerable in a small community setting uh, where they can begin to develop trust and accountability, which is the complete opposite of total isolation from mm -hmm. the disease of right. addiction. Right. What intrigued me about Mar early on, something that you just touched on, was uh, the like that. Mm -hmm. There's something that kind of, something kind of magic happens when they're on their own. See, part. Uh, I'll, let me talk to that 
at some point, a person in early recovery has to make their own choice about recovery. It doesn't work to make them do treatment and recovery. What works is a moment in that community at night when they decide or choose to try recovery. Um, and that happens with each other uh, in that community experience. I'm going to give this a chance. I don't believe it's going to work. I don't have a whole lot of hope that I can really change, but I'm going to try it. And that becomes a choice. It becomes their choice, not our choice to force it on them or make them do it. Because they're good at being compliant, being told what to do. What they're not good at is having that moment of surrender where, okay, I'm going to give this a try. And, and I don't believe it's going to work, but I'm willing to willing to give it a chance. And everything's therapeutic, <clears throat> the way we look at things. So sitting around at that, that meal on Sundays, but they also eat together other nights a week as an apartment, not the whole thing. And so that's, that's an important part where they are able to speak to each other out on the porch. That's therapeutic. Uh, taking a ride, going up to Kroger, that's therapeutic. Uh, having a conversation on the way to a 12-step meeting, all those moments are therapeutic. Riding back and forth to mirror image placement, all those things are therapeutic. And that's so treatment doesn't just happen when you sit down with your psychiatrist. It actually happens in the therapeutic community. It happens in the, the groups at MAR. It happens with the primary counselors. And the whole thing is geared uh, to let that happen, what Doug just talked about. Mm. I'll, tell, I'll tell the men often that they may have one or two chances to experience surrender in their 90-day experience. Surrender is different from compliance. Surrender is when I don't want to give this up but it hurts and I'm going to give it up anyway. And what I tell them is if they can experience that one or two times while they're in Mar, they can take that with them wherever they go and risk doing it again and again and again as part of their recovery process. You know, when guys have their cell phones at other facilities, their credit cards, their, everybody's got their own car. It's hard to have those moments of surrender. Um, what, why is that? And, and you know, in a, five-week program I mean, mm -hmm. just because there's not enough time to actually get to know the person and let them be known by others it takes a little while we, we talk about taking a couple of weeks to kind of get here so to speak and and so people have the opportunities to, to say well you know what maybe i can risk letting people get to know who i am a little bit so they'll take a little a step or two in that direction get a little feedback see how that feels and if it's okay they might keep continue doing it short programs can't can, uh, that can't happen. It's just because mm -hmm. they don't they don't have enough time to get to practice this stuff. So it's mostly it's like the ideas on a shorter program is education is going to be education and aftercare are going to be the things that save me. And we say no, you know the therapeutic community, getting to know who you are, getting the education, but also practicing it, and then having these moments of surrender, building lifelong friendships, um, and then you know a good aftercare program is important too, but. You know, 90 days is, is just about enough time to let some of that stuff happen. Mm -hmm. so, uh, and, it, and we have guys tell us all the time that at day 30, they're just beginning to open up and begin to know themselves a little bit in relationship with each other uh, in the treatment experience at MAR and in the community experience at MAR. Mm -hmm. um, and it just takes time. And we also understand that unless a client gives us permission to be with them, we we won't ever get that opportunity. And that takes a while. 
with the rise of opiate use. If you could just kind of comment on that, that current public crisis and how that as affects what you all do here. Yeah, it, it definitely does factor into the length of stay because someone who's been addicted to opiate, opiates have been heavily sedated in their brain. Their brain chemistry has changed. They're heavily dependent on that euphoria to make them to change the, what they're feeling. Uh, and uh, oftentimes if they've been in an opiate dependence process for a while, they don't really have the tools for living uh, because the drug has replaced um, any kind of healthy tools for dealing with anxiety and and uh, uh, acceptance and tension and feelings like sadness and pain. All those have been made to go away through the use of opiates. Alcohol works the same way, uh, but there's such a heavy dependence on opiate addicts coming into treatment that it takes a while for them to actually wake up because of how it's impacted the brain and be, be become, become able to engage in the assignments in the treatment process in the day-to-day -day requirements of being in treatment. Yeah, and what that looks like is, is just more passivity, sitting back. It takes a while for, for them to get comfortable, to start, to risk sharing things, to get active with doing the assignments. Uh, so that process just happens a little bit slower uh, for them to start advocating for themselves and, and getting things going in terms of their recovery. I hear a lot of guys too, just talk about this mental fog and they reach a point of usually about that two week mark where that fog starts to lift a little bit. And I think that's, there's a correlation there between that and the opiates uh, taking a while for the brain to fully wake up the fog to lift for them to be okay with where they are and start the process. Mm -hmm. What would you say to somebody who's listening and they just sent their loved one to a 30 day program. They'll be, they'll be in good shape to start here on yeah. day, day 31. Yeah. Look for an extended care program beyond 30 days because 30 days just, just begins the process, uh, starts the process of learning how to live with self in relationship with others without needing a uh, chemical or alcohol to change how I'm feeling. So not necessarily a waste, right. but more, Right. More is needed. Right. Oh, yeah. Much more. Much more. Um, so since we're on the subject of substances, do you all, does, how does that affect what uh, treatment or does it affect it? Like what the what the patient's drug of choice is? Um, do you, you know, is there a different approach for someone who's a meth addict versus... Now, we, we believe a drug is a drug is a drug. Now, our clients struggle with if they have a drug of choice and don't feel like they have had a powerless or unmanageable, unmanageable experience with another drug or alcohol, we have to help them look at the reality that any drug they put in their brain, including alcohol, will, will um, uh, produce the physical allergy and, re and, and begin the mental obsession toward wanting more. Uh, opiate addicts are a good example. Uh, an opiate addict will... will will tell you that, well, they never had a problem with alcohol. And so once they leave treatment, they could be a social drinker. But the problem is the brain doesn't know the difference. So if they relapse on alcohol, uh, in most cases, they will return to their drug of choice, which is heroin or opiates, and uh, continue their addictive process. And unfortunately, that's a lot of people's stories as they, they leave being fully sold on their powerlessness around the opiates not being sold on their powerlessness with alcohol, and then at some point along the line deciding to to try to 
quote unquote, uh, responsibly drink. And before they know it, they're back not only to, to using the alcohol in, in excess, but back to using their primary drug of choice because, uh, you know, it affects the brain in the same way. So, so what we teach is regardless of your drug of choice, there's a, a treatment and recovery process of surrender, looking at consequences of behavior and the disease, accepting powerlessness and unmanageability as a part of, um, um, as a part of embracing a lifestyle change. And the other slippery slope which we're facing is the idea that marijuana is not addictive. It is addictive. It's both emotionally and physically addictive, especially now that the potency of marijuana has uh, uh, inc increased from what it was back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, it's becoming a drug of choice that removes reality from from our clients that use marijuana versus just uh, uh, giving them the munchies. And, and uh, uh, it's, a, it's a very, very lethal uh, addictive substance now in our community. So is that something you have to combat too, that this idea that, well, marijuana, you know, it's just, it's just weed, you know, that, that sort of a, there's an educational component around that as well for the clients. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I'd say in phase one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because they're, they're thinking that, you know, typically the younger people that are using it now have no idea what it was like to, to smoke in the sixties and seventies. They think this is, this is how weed's always been. But it's probably what we say four to five times more potent, uh, at least. Yeah, yeah, no more. Yeah, and also the other the other risk for younger uh, marijuana users is that they have a potential to actually uh, I don't know what you want to call it uh, move into a psychosis with the use of marijuana, and and uh, that's that's become a greater risk with the more potent uh, the, the substance that's in it that's more potent now. That can actually move, not just getting high, but actually move into a psychosis mm -hmm. or a psychotic episode, and maybe even triggering uh, a mental health issue. I guess I'm interested in hearing about what's changed, what you've noticed that's changed, in you know, since you started, Doug, in 1970. You know, we talked about it takes longer for people to get right. here, but anything else that comes to yeah. mind? Uh, the chemicals are much more potent, uh, so we're seeing even a greater dependency on uh, drugs and alcohol to relieve pain and to uh, change our mood or to change our circumstances. Um, the euphoria is, is huge in that visual recall of uh, what the drug does for me. Um, and the earlier progression, uh, we see men and women earlier being exposed to alcohol and drugs much earlier, 12, 13 years old, which starts the uh, progression of addiction much sooner, much quicker. Um, and we ver very rarely see somebody that just is using one chemical. Uh, we see men and women using a combination of alcohol and a benzodiazepine or or opiates and marijuana, or uh, alcohol and opiates. Uh, so very rarely do we see a, a person that's just using one chemical to uh, uh, to uh, uh, change their mood or to chase after that 
feeling they got the first time they used it. Mm-hmm. Do you agree with those, Rick? Yes. <laughs> I don't really have anything to add to that. Yeah. Well, I'll share. I'll share a story. We've in the yeah. last year have had I think four men in their mid thirties uh, who started drinking and using in their uh, preteens who have already been into advanced progression of the disease of alcoholism with cirrhosis and esophageal varices at thirty six years old. Um, and that is unusual. That's very yeah. unusual. You said four? Four of those men in the last year because of earlier progression of their disease state, uh, because of earlier use and more consistent uh, use of their chemical has rapidly progressed them into an earlier state of addiction and medical consequences. I guess I want to hear, if you guys are open to it, one, a story that comes to mind in terms of watching somebody change uh from the the day that they get here to maybe now you still have a relationship with them or they're still involved as a volunteer or whatever it may be. What's a particularly powerful story that you kind of carry with you? This isn't necessarily uh, super unusual, but this, this guy was in treatment and he had a professional board he had to deal with. And so we extended him in treatment because of some rule violations and he agreed to like almost start over basically like part way into his 90 days uh challenged him before he left halfway to go to three quarters he fought that eventually went to three quarters then doug and i and and one of his good friends went to the board with him uh, got his license back and we all rode back i think we ate at denny's uh, on the way back or on the way there that day we went down to Macon, and uh, this guy is uh, working on his sixth year of recovery. He still participates in the professionals program long after he was made to by the board. Uh, he still comes to the mirror image group at least once a week and uh, sponsors people. Um, just a highly involved guy went to the Building Better Relationships group. I mean, it's just those kind of things happen all the time, mm. and. Uh, they have a loyalty to their own recovery, to the people that they were with when they were in recovery, and then this new group of people that they almost get to, in an informal way, mentor as they go through, you know, four or five, six years recovery, giving back to other people that have, you know, 30 days or just got here. So that's pretty rewarding to me, to see those kind of people all the time, not just a few. And I'm sure as a professional's liaison, you probably see a lot of people coming and thinking their career is oh yeah over. Most of them, most of them think that, and many of them think, well, I'm just going to get into something else. Uh, I'm getting into landscaping, or I'm going to have to go back. I'm just going to do something else. I'm, I'm, I'm not. There's no way I'll, they'll ever let me practice again. I mean, if I haven't heard that almost with every person, it's just yeah, it's just that's a pretty common theme. Common, common theme, and. And more often than not, they they get to keep doing what they were doing. I don't or, know. I don't know of anyone that's gone into <laughs> landscaping or something else. <laughs> Even though the fantasy was that would be easier, um, most of them, like I, I, you know, I can't think of any exact uh, examples of people who left. But I think you know, by and large, almost everyone goes back into the profession they came in thinking they would never gonna have a future in that. Wow. Yeah. So that's that's an, that's another positive thing to see. Yeah. Anything come to mind for you, Will? 
there's a couple, um, but the two that for whatever reason are, are coming to mind right now is there's two different different situations, but two different guys that came in, both facing pretty significant uh, legal consequences. They were looking at some prison time. Uh, and I think initially we're coming in at the suggestion of their lawyer, things like that for help with their legal situation primarily and getting to see them somewhere along the way, change over into doing this for themselves to, to be, uh, in recovery and to, to grow spiritually and, and find meaning and purpose through their stories. And then also going through this process of not only preparing themselves to lead a life of recovery, but preparing themselves, uh, to do that while walking through the legal consequences of while going to jail and going to prison for, for a long period of time. Uh, that process to me is just pretty amazing, you know, to get to witness that and then staying in contact with them after they've, they've gone and are, are serving out their sentence still in recovery and having them reach out and, and touch base with what they're going through on a daily basis and uh, talk about the, the meaning and purpose they're finding there, but also saying, you know, how eager they are to be able to get back to Mar uh, and connect with, with familiar faces and, and kind of get back to the outside world. That's pr- it's pretty powerful. Yeah. They have the tools they need to, to deal with that. To face anything, you know, to, to face that's pretty incredible. Prison sentence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, what I enjoy is uh, watching men and women come into treatment totally self-centered, self-absorbed no connection with other people because of addiction. And as they go through the treatment process and begin to become more self-aware, uh, and learn how to be in relationship with others, actually become servants in recovery, uh, by helping others. Um, uh, it's just, when we see that happen, it's like, wow, how, how do you go from being a self-centered, isolated, alone, uh, a self-absorbed person focused on just getting your next drug or drink to learning how to care for someone, for learning how to care for another individual, uh, which carries on back to families, uh, mm-hmm. learning how to care for families and not making it about ourselves is truly the, the, the miracle of recovery. Mm-hmm. And we see that so often, so many times, uh, I'll share one story, long-term alumni who, uh, uh, came to Mar a long time ago, had a, having had uh, an experience of being severely abused as a child um, in a lot of different forms. And um, uh, when he first came to Mar, uh, one of the groups he had to attend was a spiritual life group. And he did not want to attend that group because of the abuse he'd experienced as a child. And he would go and tolerate being in that group. And that group happened to have a lot of volunteers from that local church and from the community. And at the end of each group, each week, the only way out of that group was by getting a hug from the volunteers one by one. Um, That became a uh, opportunity for that client to begin to learn how to love himself uh, through the abuse he'd experienced. Uh, and to begin to learn how to accept and receive love from others. Uh, and that's part of his recovery story now, 32 years later. Uh, and um, that's an experience that he'll never forget or forget those members of the community that were volunteers serving Mar by giving unconditional love to our clients 
weekly in a spiritual life group. So for my last question, what's what's something that you've learned to be true from your time here at Mar? Wow, what a question, huh? <clears throat> I would, uh, what just popped into my mind is, it's not earth shattering, but um, that feelings are, are just feelings. They're not good or bad. And that being vulnerable is a, a real sign of masculinity. And uh, it's something that most men, you know, push away from until they actually start to do it. And being emotionally honest is different than being honest. Those are some key things that keep coming up in the, some of the groups I do. And one other thing that just came to mind was uh, a saying that we often use with some of the, the men is uh, in relationship. Do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? And um, I'd say a large part of my life I wanted to be right. <laughs> but I figured out uh, that it's okay uh, to not be right. And, and you actually have better relationships a lot of times. The emotional piece that, that Rick talked about there was the first thing that popped in my head, uh, but also just that we're wired for connection uh, to other people. Uh, we can't do this in isolation. We can't live a happy, happy, fulfilled life uh, on our own. So that need for community in whatever form it takes uh, is vital to, to just being, being at peace and living a, a, a happy, successful uh, life. So... I think the community idea is the thing that, that Mar offers that really just hits home for me. And that seems to apply whether you have a substance abuse problem or... Yeah, when I, when I said we're wired for that, I mean everybody. Mm -hmm. The human race is wired to be connected and surrounded by other people and supported uh, through their lives. So, And you guys get to see that every day. Yeah. And when it's working for people and when it's not, and it seems like that's... Would you say that's pretty much always the the solution for that these guys, that's yeah. what they're looking for? Absolutely. What about you, Doug? Um, I think what I've learned is that um, if we're not willing to do what we're asking our clients to do, then it's not going to work. Um, uh, we have to be willing to do the things that we ask our clients to do. And that's authentic, that's honest. And uh, the thing I love about early recovering addicts, alcoholics, is they know whether you're doing it or not. What do you mean? They have an intuition because of their life experiences and their pain. They know whether you're someone doing it also or whether you're just telling them to do it. So I think uh, for me it's uh, being willing to do what I'm asking our clients to do mm. on a daily basis. Uh, uh, as a part of um, uh, my life experience and my willingness to surrender also. So what does that look like for you if you're not in recovery? Praying on my knees daily, asking for help, uh, being respectful, uh, um, uh, doing the things that uh, uh, nurture and take care of myself in relationship to my family. Um having a balance of spirituality and uh, physical and emotional and, and mental recovery for myself. We're all in recovery, whether it's from anger or from a, a chemical or from uh, uh, behaviors in our lives that we keep secret that we can't tell anybody. We're all in recovery from something. We all have one thing in our 
closet that uh, we believe we can control and handle ourselves without God's help. And that's what we ask our clients to surrender to, and that's what we uh, uh, ask ourselves to surrender to as well. Yeah, I've got a, a good example of what that looks like uh, with the story. So we had experienced uh, sort of a, a, basically a tragedy in the local uh, recovery community, uh, the loss of somebody. And uh, I remember following that event, being pretty disheartened just with with working in the field, you know, with, with recovery, kind of seeing the, the dark side of, of what we do. Uh, and Rick came to my office one day out of the blue and asked how I was doing, you know, dealing with, with the loss. And, uh, I don't remember what I said, but his response after that was, uh, have you cried yet? And I said, you know, no, I haven't. It's, it's been bothering me, but I haven't cried yet. And he said, well, you're overdue. Come on, let's go. And we went to his office and we both cried and just, we sat together. He talked to me and it was like a, an opportunity to see firsthand what that's like. Um, and that's something that I've, I never experienced in my life, but it was so needed. And to me, that's, that's exactly what we're asking our clients to do, to be there, to support each other through hard times, through good times, through bad. Uh, and for me, like that, that's just a moment that I won't forget. Uh, and my hope is that the guys that come through have that kind of moment with the guys they're living with sometime during their time with us at Mar. It's very powerful guys. This is awesome. And I think it's going to be helpful for people. I hope. Yeah. All right. Thanks, man. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mar Experience. If you want to stay in contact with us, you can look for us on Facebook and Twitter. We also have a lot of free resources, videos, and articles on our website about the disease of addiction, how it affects families, and other topics related to treatment. Keep an eye out for a new article in the next few weeks about the opioid epidemic. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>